Welcome to Policy Insights, a podcast produced for the University of Southern Queensland's Master of Business Administration. I'm Dr. Daniel Maddock, a digital pedagogy and media specialist and part of the MBA design team. In this podcast series, we talk to leaders from a variety of industries about organisational policy and the processes involved in developing, implementing, evaluating and communicating changes and updates to policy effectively. These interviews were recorded via the internet, so please keep this in mind as you listen to this episode. Nia Yari Giam, Jaganba, Na Gayabu, Yarrawa Peoples, Nia Toowoomba. This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Giyabul and Yarrawa peoples in a place called Toowoomba. Our guest today has held a number of lead high-profile roles in government and private enterprise, with positions like Deputy Director General for the Department of Housing and Public Works and Chief Executive Officer of Darling Downs and Westmorton Public Health. Simone Finch knows how policy can steer an organisation. Simone is currently the Chief Operating Officer and Company Secretary of the QIMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute. Simone Finch, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks very much. It's lovely to be here. Simone, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your career so far and your current role with the QIMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute? Sure, of course. I'll Maybe I'll start there. So I'm currently the acting Chief Operating Officer and Council Secretary for QIMR Berghofer. So that role is all things operations, so managing uh, three very large uh, buildings, over 1,000 staff uh, who do medical research into a number of major issues that affect our community, everything from COVID through to mental health and cancer and immunology. Uh, So my role is obviously just operational, I'm not a scientist, and also I provide governance support uh, through the council secretary role to the council who are our board. So it's very similar to a company secretary type approach, but obviously under a different piece of legislation. And how did you get to this position? So interestingly, I started, uh, I actually wanted to be a fashion designer and started my career in child protection uh, to try and build up enough cash to go to arts college. And that led to not going back to arts college, but in fact to um, working in policy and working around the space of trying to understand how policy uh, changes or updates can actually affect social or health outcomes. So from there, studied uh, my first degree, then did an MBA later in in my career and uh, ended up working in corporate governance and policy because it's certainly in my practice and in my philosophy, I guess personal philosophy is that you can make some really significant social changes through good policy. And so that's where I've gotten to. But then now internally from an operations perspective, I do a lot of work around actual policy, so things like, you know, how to run the organisation, how to manage our ethical processes, how people are paid, all of those things through a sort of more governance approach, which is a sort of a different style of policy. So it's been a slightly um, unusual career and I have, I must admit, I tend to follow adventures rather than a particular plan. So I'm often um, doing something slightly unusual just because it felt like a good idea at the time and and I like an adventure. (laughs) Sounds like an excellent way to plan a career. I think so. Yeah, works for me. Simone, we're talking about policy today. Can you describe to the listeners what the role of policy is within an organisation? Absolutely. So I, if we think about it from a broader governance perspective, I always talk about um, governance as being almost like a seatbelt. So we don't rely on our seatbelts for most of the time we're in the car, but in a situation where you need to, 
that's when you need to have good policies and procedures in place because if there's a crisis, you need to be able to rely on it. So I know myself, if I'm backing my car out of my driveway, I put the seatbelt on even though I'm doing a couple of kilometres an hour and maybe not going very far, but I still put it on because it's a safety approach. So policy is a little bit like that. So while people often see policies as red tape, they really are about being very clear and transparent around how business is done and how compliance is managed across the organisation, whether that be broader ethics or strategy in the organisation or right through to, you know, a requirement the government might have at a legislative or sort of tax um, outcome. And policy gives us that guidance so that there isn't too much sort of creativity and artist, artistic responses from staff because people will tend to try and work around them. If you've got good policy and it's sensible and it's well-written and it makes sense to everyone within the organisation and they know where to find it, you you basically will have everyone doing the right thing or mostly everyone doing the right thing and the level of transparency and ethics will be at, you know, where you should be comfortable with them. Let's pick up on that well-written policy. How do we get to that stage? What sort of factors need to be accounted for when developing the policy? Uh, it's, it, you know, that's a, it's, it's a difficult one because policy wants, like myself, uh, love to have particular theories or philosophies or whatever in our policies, whether it be, you know, for example, in QIMR Burkhofer, we have, you know, a lot of policies around how we respond to COVID. Uh, and the thing we've learned most is um, they have to be clearly written and written in really, really good um, colloquial English so that everyone can understand them. Uh, not too much complexity, but enough so that it's really clear what's expected. And also then communicate it properly. So don't just put them on a website somewhere. You need to talk about them. But I think from a policy perspective, it needs to be written from a point of a perspective, of a point of view, sorry, that someone who isn't interested in policy can understand it, but still is very clear about what's expected of them. So not so simplistic that it's like a children's story, but, you know, in a situation where someone can understand it. How do you get to a stage where that's well communicated to employees? Because often, as you say, policies are shelved or, uh, you know, on the internal intranet of a company. We know they're there, but, you know, God help us, none of us are going to read them. So how, how do we get to a point where they're useful to the employees? The thing, One of the things I've learned in my career is that not everyone communicates the same way. So I'm I'm very I'm, I'm a reader. So I'm happy to read a document. I'm happy to sit with a pen and a piece of paper and read through it. I don't. I'm old enough that I don't like to read it on a screen. But um, what I've worked out is not everyone reads or understands information the same way I do, and it's just different styles. So for me, communicating policy from when it's um, you know when the policy is written through to or if it's changed through to people coming in through induction or a sort of mandatory update, there has to be multiple ways of accessing the policy. So on the internet, through reminders, um, through if if people might need it in a in a place where there's a sort of a, a booklet or a folder, for example, in obviously we run labs here. So um, in labs, there's always a folder that has all the compliance and the policy in the folder so that someone can find it quickly if they're not sitting near a computer because they might be, you know, using other lab equipment. So there's multiple ways of talking about it. I think also, and the same with risk more broadly, is it has to become part of business as usual. But one of my favourite things my divorce lawyer said to me was when you're relying on the contract, the relationship's over. And I think that's <laughs> true. 
it was true in that case too, but it's true in um, in a policy situation. You don't want to have someone relying on the policy when they when something's gone wrong and you're suddenly having to find the, the clause that says that. What you want people to do is go, oh, I'm not quite sure whether I should do that, so I'll just have a quick look. Or, you know, somebody coming in and ha- going through their induction, whether that be, you know, a staff member, whether it be a board or council member, whether it be a senior leader, that they know where to look and that they're across the expectations of the organisation. The other thing, regardless of compliance with legislation or any other sort of rules, um, you know, codes, or et cetera, it has to be sit within the ethical framework of the organisation which is set out in your values. You can't have stuff that's separate to that. It has to always be reflected back on the values of the organisation. Would you be able to share an experience you've had around policy, Simone, where there's been a change of policy that was needed in your organisation and how you approach that situation? Interestingly, I've done a lot of work in this space, um, both sort of in roles like this or but also in um, as a consultant. A few years ago, I worked as uh, the chief executive of a hospital and health service. So we were, when I took us over, we were in administration, there was lots of challenges, and I came in to sort of get the organisation back up on its feet so that they could form a board. And when I took over, there weren't, the policies weren't compliant, there was a lot of um, challenges, there was lots of bad behaviour, there was, you know, all sorts of interesting things which made the job fascinating. And it was also in a remote community, so, you know, fantastic from a, from a perspective of doing things differently. One of the things we did was we didn't have uh, good policies around how we managed um, information for patients. So this was hospital and health service. So we had hospitals and we had primary health clinics and we didn't have, we weren't compliant with the rules around how we managed staff, um, information on our patients, but also how we then managed the patient files. So we had to bring in sort of contemporary policies from Queensland Health, but at the same time make sure that they were uh, in place and understood by both the community we served and also our staff. And one of the issues of living in a remote community or any small community is you know everybody. So I, even though I work in Brisbane, I live in Toowoomba, and, um, you know, you know, you bump into people all the time. You know a lot of people. So in a smaller community where you've got very, very small, you know, island communities where everybody knows everybody and everyone's related to someone, you don't want a situation where someone's medical files could be accessible or, you know, in a situation where someone might see or hear the wrong thing. So we had all these policies around ethics and and how information was transferred, good procedures, but we also had a community that had low levels of literacy, lowish levels of literacy, but also many people had English as a third or fourth language because they spoke a whole lot of other traditional languages. So it was some of that that we had to come to terms with. My view in any way of change, whether it's policy or whether it's, you know, um, changing a structure or whether it's, you know, changing staff, is communicate, communicate, communicate. So it's constantly talking about it, talking about the why it's being done, what the outcomes might be, how it's going to benefit people and what the changes are that are expected, but also having dates. So on this day, this policy will be in place and from then you're expected to follow it and here's what we're going to do to train you to make sure you know what it is we need to do. So in that case, we had training for the um, record staff, we had training for the clinicians, we had training for the administrative staff at different levels because everybody had things that they approached the um, new processes and policies differently, um, but no one could say they didn't know. And that's a way of getting people to be compliant with it. It seems to me there's a shared 
community response in that situation. When you have training, when you have communication, when you have everyone in the room together, there's a responsibility to each other then to deliver on the policy. Absolutely. And the other upside to all of that is then you can't have someone working around the policy because everyone will know that's what they're doing and it becomes a problem. So people will say, hang on, that's not the way you're supposed to do it. That's not how we do things here. Um, And there'll be a a shift towards better behaviour and more transparent sort of um, expectations. So for me, as you probably keep hearing me say, I talk a lot about transparency and ethics because policies have to, they're a little organic, you know, they have to change. So I know, for example, when I first started work in the 80s, I worked for an organisation, the policy was women couldn't wear trousers to work. There was actually a policy that was turned upon and we couldn't wear trousers to work. Whereas now, I can't imagine. (laughs) And now, interestingly, still don't wear trousers to work, not because of the policy, just because I don't like them. But interestingly, I can't imagine. My EA has trousers on today. In fact, she wears them most days. So it's not a policy that, you know, 30, 40 years on, we're still fitting to. But in the 80s, it was very normal. Interesting to think that someone sat down and wrote that policy, conceived that this might be an issue and and wrote a policy. Well, back then it was because a woman couldn't wear trousers in a court and often we would go to court because I worked in child protection. So it was a policy of the organisation so that we fed into the requirements of the court. Now, why the court had it, I don't know. But then I remember working, and obviously my interest in fashion um, shows here, but I remember working for another organisation that a woman couldn't wear a clothing item that had polka dots on it. We could only wear spots. So I hang on, no, you could do polka dots but not spots. So they had to be smaller than a five-cent piece, which I thought was ridiculous and promptly went out and bought things with large spots on them. But but it was an interesting um, sort of policy decision that was about the view of the company, about the, the, um, you know, the presentation of the company but somewhere at some point had thought that that was a good policy. Now, really, that's a bit silly. But and now, you know, we're here developing things. You know, I have conversations with staff regularly about things like um, what's our policy towards people who might identify as transgender or binary? How do we make sure that our policies make sure that they're safe in our organisation? Should somebody be working with us who experiences who is, who is identifying that way? How do we make sure that all our policies speak to all genders? How do we make sure that all our policies are around safety and care and compassion, not about exclusion or or, um, sort of ignoring someone's experience? So it's quite a different sort of space than we were in the 80s. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that policy has to be about it. It has to be constantly updated and considered in in the uh, context of the the organisation. So policy has to be reflective of culture, the, the current the, the zeitgeist and what's occurring in your local area too uh, as well as what's occurring sort of nationally so you talked about working in a in a regional or remote setting which would have had different implications than say a metro setting yeah absolutely and just the way you do business is different you know you could, for example uh normally uh so for example i work in a statutory authority if we're going to spend over a certain amount of money our policy is that you get three quotes the statutory authority i ran as the ceo in that remote community um the policy stood that you had to get three quotes but in a remote community you might only have one supplier and our ethical approach was if we can use that one supplier to support their economy, to support the jobs that they had in the community, we would do that there. So we had to rethink our policy on procurement, but also not put ourselves in any danger of, you know, conflict or being in a situation where we're paying too much for something using public money. So it's some of that sort of reflective um, approach 
that says, well, does the policy fit? And if it does, that's good. Let's let's make sure it shifts and stays in place and we're constantly reviewing it. But it, it, but it does it, you know, is it not good for us and what can we do differently? Simone, let's go a little bit further down that rabbit hole. I want to know, in your experience, have you ever had a policy, known about a policy or implemented one yourself where it was a well-intentioned policy but it had an unexpected outcome, an unplanned influence on the organisation? Oh, that's a really good question. I'm just trying to think. Well, yes, actually, now I think about it, yes, I have. So I, can't, I won't mention the organisation. I'll keep them secret. But um, I came into an organisation that was busily in its in, in all good honesty and, and sort of compassion for people were developing a policy around maternity care. And so around giving access to staff who, or to mums in this case, who, um, you know, were expecting or had had a baby. And they had implemented it just as I was coming in. And when I asked the question around what about, well, number one, this isn't compliant with government expectations. What about adoptive parents? What about dads who have had a baby? What about, you know, say, for example, in a same-sex marriage or relationship who might have a new baby and one of the dads is wanting to take some care. So while the organisation was trying to do, trying to make sure it had this sort of modern approach to um, parenting, what it was doing is actually placing parenting solely in the in the care of women um, and married women in the in the way that the um, policy was written. And I don't really think they, I think they just were being sweet and trying to think about it and considered other types of families or other experiences people have. So it didn't take much to, well, took a few rather um, uh, pointed conversations with some senior leadership to suggest to them that there were other types of families and um, and that other people might have a different experience. Interestingly, um, one of them, the feedback from one of them was that because I don't have children, I should mind my own business. But uh, I was the chief executive at the time, so I probably didn't mind my own business and changed it anyway to feel that it was really my not having children was really the point of this policy. So, um, but, it, you know, it, and look, the policy was um, formed out of quite a religious, um, quite a sort of religious space that many of these people came from. So they were seeing it from their personal perception rather than actually seeing it from a sort of more um, compliance expectation that, you know, the Australian government might have around um, family care and rights to rights to maternity leave or paternity leave, as the case may be, or parental leave, as we now call it. So, um, it was an interesting sort of conversation to have. That's an interesting example, and I, I think it speaks to the fact that we need to find out how different people think and what their experiences are. How do how do we do that when we're creating policy? How do we get that information and make sure we're representative? Look, I, I'm uh, I'm slightly old-fashioned in this space. I'm really up for a conversation. I'm doing some work here at the moment. We're doing some work around our ethics policies. We've got a suite of policies around ethical research and how you manage things like, um, you know, clinical trials, et cetera. Rather than writing them all, having them all somewhere on a, you know, website somewhere and or an intranet site and just asking our scientists to have a look at, I've actually formed a committee that um, I'm co-chairing with one of the scientific leaders because I'm not a scientist, so I can't really speak to specific scientific policy. But um, so myself and one of my peers are um, co-chairing it. But we have got a group of about, I think it's probably 11 or 12, which is large and not normally something I would choose, but I wanted to have really representative. And we've got everyone from sort of facilities and um, and the sort of clinical trial space right through to um, young uh, postdoc students 
uh, research assistants and right through to sort of senior scientists. So there's this really broad group of people. I've um, purposely chosen, uh, we're not, we're, we, we went to an EOI, so we got people to put their hand up to come onto the committee. That was sent to everybody in the organisation. Everybody was welcome. We chose a number of people, but we were sure that we managed to sort of the gender representation. We managed, we've got lots of people who don't have English-speaking backgrounds um, and we have different levels of staff. And what we do is we're basically co-designing the policy. So we have really rigorous and frank conversations about the policy, whether it works, what it looks like. We've got a lawyer on that group so she can um, speak to us around what's expected. We've got a couple of um, experts around um, the regulatory framework and what's required under the code. Um, and then we test that against um, our ethical requirements. So when we write or rewrite the policy, we test it to make sure that um, we sort of almost do a pub test. And, you know, uh, my comment is always, if I was explaining this to my grandmother, would she be comfortable with this? So how, how do we manage that? So the co-design process does take longer and does involve more, but what it does do is stops rumours because rumours are rife in organisations. So QIMR Berghofer is very much like a university structure and having worked at the university, I'm aware that universities can also be one for good lots of gossip. Um, and so what we do is by doing it this way, it's slower and it can be painful at times. But I'd rather have the frank conversation and really nut it out than put something in place like the maternity care one I was talking about before that doesn't work, it's going to hurt people and actually cause more concern um, and have to go back and rewrite it. This, this way we're getting it right the first time around or getting it close to right. I'm not sure we'll ever get everything right. How important is it then for a leader to understand what policy is doing in the organisation? Policies aren't always written or perhaps even understood fully by leaders of organisations. They might come out of HR organisations or the financial arm of the business. How important is it for a leader to still be across those policies and maybe even have influence in that space? I think it's essential. I think you can't lead unless you know what, well, I don't think you can lead unless you know what you're leading. But I also think that if you don't follow the policies, well, then what's the point? No one else is going to. If they see you getting away with stuff. I was in a meeting earlier today and said the rules apply to everyone equally. So I'm I'm the 2IC of a very large organisation and my view is the rules apply to me just as much as they apply to the cleaning lady or the girl that makes my coffee in the morning, our lovely barista who's incredibly clever. So out the rules are applied all the same. So I need to know what rules I'm expecting I think also one of the things that trips leaders up, particularly leaders who might be new in the space, is not knowing what things like their delegations are. And so good policies around financial delegation, human resources delegation, et cetera, have to be known and understood really well by the senior leaders so you don't get tripped up by signing something you don't have delegation for or making a decision that's going to come back and bite you. You have to know exactly where you sit in that space. And if you don't, well, you might need to rethink your career. It's really essential. You can't be a cowboy at this level. You have to lead by example. Simone, what advice can you give to our students who are going to graduate the MBA and go into the world? Perhaps maybe they're going to start in middle management or even if they're lucky senior leadership roles. What advice would you give to them about the importance of understanding the policy landscape within an organisation they might be entering? 
Well, a couple that I've probably learned from experience. So number one, don't be so don't be too uh, black and white about policy. So I I have it because I'm a governance expert. I have quite a um, black and white view on good governance and how things should be done. And um, I've learned by experience that that doesn't necessarily shared by everybody. And having a broader space where you can talk about it and talk about the reason why, rather than just saying because it's the law or because it's the policy or because that's how we do it here doesn't really help. So when you're working with someone who might be really creative or might have a a different expertise in a different space, you know, I work with scientists and regularly get, but that's not how we do things here. I don't want to do that. It's too hard. And so I say, no, well, this is why you're going to do it. This is why it's important. And here's how I manage that space. And that tends to shift most people back into the sort of where we need them to be and to following whatever that policy might be. I think also having a perspective that you can't have the same policy for multiple years. You need to constantly update it. You need to make sure it fits with your values, with your strategy, with your sort of broader outcomes. But also it also fits with the rules. You know, your policy on delegation might have changed if you're in a government organisation or your policy on, I don't know, if you work for a not-for-profit on, on you know, your um, salary package, you might have to change if the, if the tax acts change. So you just have to be across that and working with experts in that space. Um, But I think really the big thing is lead by example. You just have to be the person who, if people see you misbehaving and if people see you flaunting something, they will do exactly that and you can't expect them not to. It's a bit like a child. You know, friends with small children will often be surprised that the children learn swear words. It's like, well... You know, I, I've been to your house. How do they not? How do you expect them not to learn swear words? You swear, and you know, I swear as well, so it doesn't bother me. But when it's coming out of a three-year-old's mouth, is that really the best option? So, you know, if you're going to ask people to do something, you have to do it yourself. Lead by example. That's uh, great advice for for starting leaders um, in our program. Thank you very much, Simon Finch, for coming on the show. That's all right. My great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Information about our guests can always be found in the podcast show notes in your podcast app or on the course site. This has been a University of Southern Queensland podcast produced by the Office for the Advancement of Learning and Teaching.